Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company, brought to you by LibraryOfTheDam.com. I'm Andrew Robertson, your host for this episode, and this is a bonus episode of the podcast as a part of our Pride Month series where we speak with queer writers working in the horror genre. Our guest for this episode is author J. Daniel Stone, who writes from New York City, where he was born and raised. He's the author of the urban horror novels The Absence of Light and Blood Kiss, and the forthcoming collection of dark short stories, Love Bites and Razor Lines. He writes under a pseudonym to keep the wolves at bay, and as any of our, <laughs> lis- <laughs> as any of our listeners know, I love wolves. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So this is one of my standard first date questions for the podcast, and this being sure. our, our first date, what was your first encounter with the horror genre? Ooh, uh, I remember very vividly. Uh, I was probably about nine or ten, and there was a lovely movie about to be played on um, cable. That was back in the day when you had to actually have a TV guide to look what was playing. Uh, And TV guide said that this movie called The Exorcist was playing. No clue what it was. I just thought it was a really cool word. The word, I don't know. So I wound up uh, watching this movie with, uh, one of my best friends, uh, his name was Mark, he lived across the street, and there's a scene in the movie that everybody knows this movie, in the, in the horror world at least, uh, when Reagan is bouncing up and down the bed, Her first, when, the, when Pazuzu is entering her body for the first time, and she's going up and down, back and forth, and when I saw the eyes roll back in her head and they were ghostly white and pale as, you know, like white marbles, I ran the fuck out of there, and I ran home, and I didn't sleep for three days. That was my introduction to the horror genre, and I've never stopped um, going for that same feeling ever since. I've never felt more scared in my life than that moment. That was pretty much it, as cliche as it sounds. That's literally was my introduction. It is a terrifying movie, and I don't think anybody, you know, no matter what you've heard about it, nothing prepares you for it. I remember I watched it on something like WUTV Buffalo. Uh, in the, <laughs> in, yeah, that, that, a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. In the afternoon one Sunday... And, uh, you know, people were coming and going in the house and part of me was like, oh God, they're like walking by while she's doing all this stuff in the bed and everything. But everyone that walked by was like, oh man, that movie's going to demand you. And uh, nothing can prepare you for, for that film, even in the afternoon. It was terrifying. Nothing, nothing. And I think what scare, the, the, the whole point of why it's so scary is because humans love control. I, I do. I'm a control freak. And, uh, one thing you can never control is an outside entity entering your body. You know, you can you could fight a serial killer, you could fight Michael Myers all you want with a baseball bat. You know, that's a physical being that you could touch. This demon, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, you can't do anything. It controls you no matter what you do. And I think that's part of the the fright factor for that movie. It it did that, look, at least for me. It did look like you could smell that demon actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some parts, in some parts of the movie. For sure. A lot of pea soup. So who was, uh, moving, moving to the literary world, who was, your, who was your first horror crush in the writing world? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I, you know, this kind of stuff comes in stages for me, really. Um, when I was younger, of course, I liked R.L. Stein's Goosebumps when I was younger. Really young, I guess, whatever you know, suitable age for that was. Uh, then I started graduating. Uh, I, I did the, you know, supermarket kind of authors. I did Stephen King, you know, Peter Straubs, all of them. But I think my first real true, true crush was probably I'm looking at my bookshelf. I'm trying to remember what I was reading. 
It's a tie between, I read a book called Silk by Caitlin Rebecca Kiernan and, and was blown away. And then I also read a book, House of Leaves by Mark uh, Z. Danielewski, which, which just put me in another dimension. So I would say it's a tie between those two. Cause that's, and that, and that would really made me say, Ooh, this is the stuff I want to be involved in forever, forever and ever. So, um, were you writing at the point that you discovered them or was that something that gave you a push to, to try it yourself? No, I was, I, I was already definitely starting to write by then, by the time I discovered them for sure. Probably before, probably a little before I started writing, you know, let's see, I just turned 30 rewind time, probably started trying to write like, you know, prose, short stories around like, you know, 16, 17, and it was garbage. So I just started reading a lot. But then, you know, as I graduated with my, you know, reading stuff, you know, there's there's gradations of, of books, you know, there's books that make you want to turn the pages, there's books that make you want to study the words that are written in the pages, and there are books that, uh, you know, influence you, you know, so, and then make you want to do stuff, make you want to create art. You know, artists are very funny you know it's a very personal thing too so you know maybe my way is not the way for most people but that's how it happened with me so let's talk about your work uh without any spoilers can you tell our listeners about your first two novels a bit about the characters and an overview of the plot for each uh sure first my first novel the absence of light uh was written when i was pretty young younger i should say started it when i was like 21 um it's full of youthful, crazy, passionate energy about a bunch of kids who are born and raised in New York City uh, who are a trio of ghost hunters and another group who's like a kind of like a underground, industrial, nine-inch nails, kind of deftones, influence kind of band um, that come out of the backwoods of Pennsylvania and they these two forces collide and they discover somehow two of them are related through... Uh, a very bad birthing situation in New York and then somehow they're separating them. <laughs> That's a way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and they, they come together and, you know, all this stuff, all this rediscovery happens, all this, you know, all these lonely kids who are always searching for a place in life, they finally uh, find each other and they find solace and, and understanding within one another, which makes the world a little more tolerable because the world is a very intolerant place. Uh, definitely. So that was definitely the basis of that novel. Um, Blood Kiss, um, a little more angry sort of novel. Um, Blood Kiss revolves around four native New Yorkers who are severely tortured by their own um, uh, creativity. One character is a painter, the other character is a poet, and their partners are best friends who have a business mind and they want to put their partners together because they know they're both going sort of solely kind of insane in their own brain. They put these two together and they start making these arts and shows and kind of the two kind of become obsessed with the two artists become obsessed with one another while the, the boyfriend and the girlfriend, the partners, they, they start resenting the relationship that the two are developing as they become closer as artists and closer as friends. And a lot of bad stuff happens. <laughs> as best as I can explain it. A lot um, of bad stuff happens. A lot of obsession. 
a lot of obsession and a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, a lot of the stuff I personally have done in my lifetime, you know. So that's where I get half my inspiration from. Do you find that you're an obsessive person? Oh, without a doubt. Without my obsessions, I probably couldn't even be an artist. I think they, it drives me. I think my obsession and my personal anger at certain things drive me to, to write and to write these emotions out. And that's where I get my stories from. So I noticed that uh, Blood Kiss references the absence of light. Um, oh, yes. In a few ways as the plot progresses. So, you know, there's a graffiti tag um, of the band name from the first novel, Electric Orchid, mm -hmm. that, that's found in the second book. Um, how much did you want those two worlds to sort of collide? And is that going to be an ongoing theme in your body of work? I, you know what? I didn't want it to collide at all. I really wanted two separate novels. But as I was working my way through Blood Kiss, um, I knew that by the end of the absence of light, by the end of the absence of light, I knew where my characters were ready, ready to go next. Like I barely touched, you know, on the Brooklyn scene when I was doing the absence of light. I stayed in more Long Island City, Queens. I stayed in Lower Manhattan, and I just knew that it was going to branch off that way. But it didn't feel organic or natural for me to do a second book and then put them there. I just sort of, kind of knew. If the, if the timing was right and if the, if the feel was right, I could definitely um, get them to show up somewhere else. Not every character shows up, though, you know, but two of my favorite characters definitely do. And then one character who was my absolute favorite shows up for about two pages, I believe. Uh, I think two or three pages. Um, but it was for a very important reason. It was for one of the main characters in Blood Kiss to realize some things about herself because she needed to hear it from another female, basically, um, who was a believer in, you know, things, you know, be it witchcraft or ghosts or goblins, however you want to see it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, was, it just felt very organic by the time I was writing it, and I realized I missed those characters as I was going through Blood Kiss. Like, I totally loved the characters, but it's like, I, I, I was so attached to the people in my first book, because, you know, this is not a spoiler, this is just the truth. The truth is the people in my first book is everybody who I grew up with and, and, and made a life out of um, as I was a teenager in my early 20s. So those are, those are all real life people to me and I just wanted to be with them again because as you, as you know, as you become an adult, you get your adult life and you, you separate. People move, people get families, people have kids, people, people just move on and that's just life. So... For me, who's a lingerer and an obsessor, I wanted to continue with these memories, so I just stuck with them. So yeah, that's about it. So with your with your writing, you're very descriptive, and and you touched on the life of uh, artists and art before. Um, so you you use that skill a great deal to talk about the many different forms of art in the books and their different nuances, and uh, and it shows that reverence towards uh, creativity and that process. So how important is mm -hmm. visual and spoken art or music to your life and your writing as a process? Uh, it's, it's my number one driver, probably. I, I think music is, a, is definitely the number one driver uh, of, of my own writing. Um, music has always done something to me that I, I can't explain before any other medium. It's, a, it's always been music, you know, feeling down, feeling alone, you know, I mean... You know, we all go through our teenage phases and, you know, being a gay person as well, it's just kind of, it's, it's rough growing up, even in New York City. I mean, everyone thinks this is the liberal city of, of, 
of the United States. I mean, it, it's it's really it wasn't at least back then. It's trying to be now. I mean, that's what the media will tell you, but it's really not. They have it has its pockets of hatred, and these those pockets are humongous. There are certain places a gay person can't walk within the five boroughs, you know. So these are things that you deal with, and of course dealing with people who are religious and, and families and. Uh, you know, they just drive all this rhetoric down your throat. You should be this way and not be this way, you know, because it's wrong. So art, you know, bringing it back to music, that was the first kind of thing where I finally said, oh, I can be myself in this space. When I close my door, it's me and the music. And you just absorb those words and absorb the melodies and you, you transform. You, you evolve into something else. You, you evolve into feeling brave. You evolve into feeling like you can express yourself because they did it. They did it first. So that's pretty much where it starts for me. There, as I got older, in my late teens and uh, early twenties, I started to develop um, a love for uh, paintings and portraits, and you know, diptychs, triptychs, you name it. Francis Bacon. I mean, I can name so many of them. Um, and uh, that that started to have a different effect on me, where. I would remain, I would sit in a silent place and stare at something at one angle and see something and stare at something at another angle, stare at the same portrait at another angle and see something completely different. Same thing, if you're 20 feet away from it, if you're 10 feet away from it, uh, it can have massive effects on you. So I started becoming a big appreciator of that. And of course, uh, what's left out there, movies, I mean, movies are... Everyone can relate to movies. Uh, they're, they just they put they trap you in a two-hour world, and you're you're theirs until they let you go at the credits. You know, so it's that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I went off on a tangent, but that's no, not that's at all. Much it. Uh, we we actually uh, we've asked a few people this before, and we've talked about uh, writing process in the podcast. Do you listen to music when you write, or does it have to be silent? Oh no, music's on. What's uh, on for sure? Do you have a specific album that's one of your drivers? It depends on what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Every short story I've written has had like one song on loop, or every novel I've had has had a has had an album on loop or two albums on loop to um, get my brain going. Like I said, you know, it's it's not just the lyrics; it's the melodies that it's the vocal melodies. It's <clears throat> it's you know it's guitar chords, it's bridges, it's everything. Uh, drum beats is everything that that gets that gets me going at least personally. But I definitely have to have noise. Silence will drive me insane. Probably because I'm a New Yorker and all I hear is noise. So silence scares me. Yeah, I can actually I can hear cars in the distance and it's like yeah, like, yeah people, people honking and it's like the the sound of New York, prototypical sound yeah. of New York. Um, yeah. I I actually uh, can't even list how many things I've written specifically to Nine Inch Nails, A Warm Place on Repeat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty right here. Yeah. <laughs> I would say The Absence of Light was Nine Inch Nails on Repeat. You know, three you know, three different albums, definitely. For sure. So, um, you, you brought up being queer in New York, and you know, everyone has this idea that it's a really accepting city, and then there's the reality. <laughs> because there's, there's, there's a lot of romanticized um, New York stories, you know, and, and then there's the reality of actually living there. So, yep. In in your work, there's queer themes in there, but unlike mm-hmm. some other writers who let sort of an LGBT message dominate the work, I found that yours uh, were more woven into the plot and and sometimes um, in the background as opposed to being 
you know, right, right in the foreground and being sort of the, the primary focus of a chapter or, you know, a, a, a narrative arc. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also noticed that the queer characters don't always get the happy ending that maybe a queer reader reading a queer author would expect. Um, so yeah. as, as a queer horror writer, how important is it to represent LGBT people in your work? And how do you approach their inclusion in the narrative to make it genuine for yourself as the writer? Uh, well, question A, inclusiveness. Uh, it's, it's extremely important to me. Um, I would be a liar if, if I said it's not. Um, I remember when I first started writing, I was writing gay characters, queer characters, and I would be like rejected off the bat. And we're talking 2008, 2009 here. And then I did an experiment and I started writing straight characters into my short stories. And I'm, I was noticing, ooh, getting accepted, getting accepted. No gay characters in here. Um, so that's when I was writing The Absence of Light and I said to myself, you know what, fuck this. I'm not gonna fucking listen to anybody. This just sounds, this just feels really fake right now. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm queer. I know straight people, whatever. It works, I could write them. But for me personally, it just bores me. I, I need to be around the stuff that really makes me feel like a human. You know, before I'm anything else in the world, I, I always tell people I'm, I'm a gay person. I'm, I, I'm not an American. I'm not, I'm not uh, 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 an art lover. I'm a gay person first because gayness is how I live my life. I, I couldn't hide it. You know, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to. So to have these characters in my work is truthful to me personally. And it's truthful to who, to the things that I want to say with my work. You know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of anger and resentment and a lot of stuff that, you know, people think like a lot of gay people are so like uppity and happy and like dancing around and blasting Lady Gaga all the time. I'm like, no, that's not really (laughs) how it is for a lot of gay people. Yeah, that's on the outside. But on the inside, you know, a lot of us are hurting. And it's because our parents don't like our lifestyle, our, our grandparents don't like it, uh, society doesn't like it. You know, it's, it's, we're, the, we're the final struggle, you know. I mean, and of course there are, there, are, there are people in the LGBT community that are worse off than someone like me. Like I'm cisgendered, I'm not trans, I don't have, to, I don't have that struggle, but it's something I empathize with completely. So it's, it's, it's a story that I share with them. Um, and it's something that I definitely, you know, I don't want to rub people's faces in it, but I don't want to have to change my writing style to suit an editor's taste or to suit an audience's taste. Cause again, to be quite honest, <clears throat> and this is a problem in the horror community and I'm not even afraid to say it. Gay people exist, gay people read horror and what you see out there and all those years best fiction and years best this and years best that. There's no gay people in it. There's, there's hardly any gay people in it. And if they are a gay author, I can almost guarantee they're writing straight characters just to please a readership. So, I mean, it's very difficult to get my work out there. You see, uh, you know, in this raw form that I try to present it, uh, because I do think there is a little bit of hesitance or something to, to the, the queer community. Like no one gets it unless they're queer. So we're a small demographic and it's not a big seller for publishers or editors. So they don't take a chance on it. And yet they all cry and they say, oh, let's include them. Diversity, diversity, diversity. I'm just not seeing it. And that's just, my, that's just the truth. So, I mean, when I start seeing it, I'll shut up. Until then, I'm going to still write out and loud gay people and they're going to be angry and they're going to be annoyed.
at the world. It's it's an interesting point because um, you you don't see that much dominant queer narrative in horror unless nope. it's presented in a sort of uh, you know odd a special anthology or like we should be yeah like we should be grateful we got this one anthology you know oh there it is. No, we should, they should be sprinkled in the like we are in the real world. If you walk on the streets of every city, any city, any suburb, there's going to be a gay person there. And that's how fiction should be. It would be a, it's a disservice to readers to only read from one point of view. And that's the point of views we're getting. We're getting a lot of the same point of views in these year best and this best and this anthology, that anthology. We're getting one point of view. Believe me, I've read them and I've rolled my eyes up at half of them. So this is, this is what we're getting and it's really unfair. You know, so it drives me a little crazy. I'm thinking that that when a a perceptibly queer character, let's say for for sake of argument, like say Buffalo Bill appears, Mm -hmm. you get get the queer edge, but all of the queer is used for the horror as opposed to positioning the character as the protagonist or the hero necessarily. So I, I feel that there's still quite a ways to go and and there's a marked difference when you go over to say television and you've got something like American Horror Story where almost mm-hmm. all, all the characters could be read as queer but again mm-hmm. you're dealing in stereotypes um, and Big time. and shock value and it's it's yeah. interesting to see how it's presented you know even if you go back to, to True Blood or, or a number of other shows you do have mm-hmm. the queer characters and queer themes uh, but it's used as othering and and a way to sort of say look how strange this is you know but yeah, maybe people are running it, out of ideas um but i, I don't know think they're just afraid to put the, the the gay people to the forefront because not many people not enough people could relate to them and it wouldn't make money so you have to use it as this thing like from uh, the another planet and then they say oh woo, look at this strange thing over here let's go let's go it's a mystery you know that's how it's kind of used well i mean on one hand it's fine you know because the gay demographic is very small you know it's, uh, it's not we're not in the millions i mean we're maybe in the millions but compared to 300 million here just in the usa alone and how many of you in canada up there what do you got 30 million people in canada Oh, I don't know. I think we're the population of New York spread across a much larger area. <laughs> so close, to, so so close to so close, maybe twenty-five million because. So I mean, I'm sure the gay population is even really smaller there in Canada. You know, due to the due to the fact there's only twenty-five million people in in the country. So yeah, I mean, we're used as this sort of like thing from another planet to get to garnish interest in 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 in, in you know your everyday viewer, which is annoying. But, you know, it, it, there is a sort of truth to it. But like I said, you know, sometimes it just be nice to have a little bit of a break, you know, just make us Superman for one time and then and then and then you can let it go. But we haven't even got that yet. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I think as well, if more people were honest with themselves, we'd see those numbers go up. But I think we'll have to wait a while for that to happen. Mm-hmm. I know. So what can you do? <laughs> I'm sure some of our, our listeners are wondering, in, in light of that, that sort of um, the stalling that you see, you know, where, where you're sending out you know, straight, straight horror fiction to get acceptance letters, um, mm-hmm. how did you develop a relationship with Villipede, who, who have put out your two novels? Oh, very interesting. It was through a friend of mine. Uh, he's a writer. His name is Jonathan Moon. He's uh, like an underground horror writer. 
And I would always get his books, and like you know, I really enjoy his fiction because he he writes differently, and it, it keeps my keeps my eyes going and my keep my interest peaked. But the, the cover art, I kept looking at this cover art. I'm like, who the hell is this person doing his cover art? And he said, it's this guy named Matt. And Matt's this talented artist um, who just so happened to be the owner of this press. And I was really just going to Matt at that time through Jonathan's recommendation, just saying, hey, I'm. I have a, a book I'd like, you know, to do to get cover art. I mean, I was honest and I was like, I don't think you'll like it. I think it's graphic. It's this, it's this, and this. Um, so he wound up. He was like, Well, I need to read the book to do the art. So I said, Okay, here's the book. Um, he wound up reading the book, did the cover art. Um, I love the cover art, and then I just kind of sat on it for a couple of months, and then randomly, this, you know, Matt emails and says, You know, Hey, you know, I. I really did like this book a lot. I'm wondering if you would want me to publish it. And then, you know, back then, what was I going to say? No. <laughs> so that's pretty much how it started. And then we've developed, we've become really good friends after that. Um, and we're still pretty good to this day. So as publishers go, they seem to be very involved in, in working with you and getting the word out. So what's the best thing about working with Villapede Publications? Oh, the first and foremost is their, their dedication to quality on a book they work very slow um slower than i would like and i'm a new yorker i like everything fast but when you hold that final product in your hands it's 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 a forever thing it's it's like you it's on your it's on your shelf forever it looks beautiful so their dedication to combining their art you know they have a very specific artistic direction uh that i respect so i, I usually let them have that and as they also respect a writer's uh, artistic direction with their words. So we always find a happy medium. No one's really telling anybody what to do. We give, you know, you, you do a manuscript, you do recommendations, back and forth, you go through the art, back and forth. And in the end, you pretty much come to a final product that, that is so satisfying that you, you never would want to work with anyone else. I mean, if you see their line, their, their books are beautiful. They line my bookshelf. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, this is not even personal bias. I just, I liked them before I even was a client of theirs because I saw the work that they were doing, especially the, the, the art that they were putting out, the illustrations for books. Like you would see like Matt's illustrations and Luke Spooner worked for them at some point. Uh, so many different artists, uh, have, have gone through the doors of, of Villapede and they just never, ever fail with, with their art. And for me, a book is words plus cover. I, I don't care what anyone says, really. This is my personal opinion. I don't like books with shitty covers. I, I just think it, it bores me. So I like books that have interesting covers by interesting artists and that do something out of the box. You know, Villapine does stuff out of the box for me. So, and they're unique. I'm looking at their books now, my bookshelf. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, Very I good stuff. Totally agree. Uh, I've had so many discussions with authors about the cover art and how much input they have in it. And if they haven't and they're disappointed with the cover, how they feel about that. Because mm -hmm. you, you put a lot of work into what's in between the front and the back cover and, and you want something, you know, you, you don't to represent to, it. Yeah, you don't want it to look it's like everyone simple. else's. I think with, with the horror community over the past two years, we've seen a glut of covers that look exactly the same and they're super uh. distressed and they're super processed. And it's all sort of like, pastels mm -hmm. and bloods and filters i don't i don't want to look at a table of books that all look the same 
And no, I will never. say that until I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree with you, to be quite honest. I think a, a beautiful, I mean, look at those specialty presses, what they do. Look at subterranean press, what they put out. Those are the shit you should be aspiring to. Look at the stuff that comes out of centipede press. That's, those are the kind of covers people should be aspiring to because they spend money on, on artists that know what the fuck they're doing and they actually, when the book is done, that book is like holy when you hold it in your hand. And that's what Villapie does, but on a much smaller scale. They do it on a much smaller scale and a much cheaper scale. But I'm just saying, it's, it's possible. You just, have to find the, you just have to find the people who believe in your vision and you have to believe in their vision as well and they can work. It's true. It's all, it's all in the right collaborator, collaborators. Yeah, for so, sure. So I have a couple more questions for you. Sure, and, sure, sure, uh, sure. And one of them is, in your opinion, why are queer people drawn to horror? Because I, almost mm. every queer person I know loves horror movies, horror books. There's something in there that draws them to it. In your opinion, what is that draw? That's so true. Uh, oh, man. But what I say, I'm trying to think of my friend group. Not many of my friends personally like horror. They're too afraid of it. But the ones that do love it, um, I, I think what we share, this is what I share and what I share with them. So I believe that the queer community is drawn to horror because for just, at least, let's just say movies. Because that's the easiest thing. Everyone can relate to a movie. Mm -hmm. So for two hours, you have this thing going on on a screen, and for those two hours, without the help of drugs or alcohol, you are taken out of your own world and your own issues, and you are actually fully engaged in a screen and worried for these people that are on the screen. And those emotions help. It's kind of like a therapy session without going to a therapist. You actually let your own issues go, and you actually watch this screen, and you're taken out of you're taken out of real life because you're you're focused on being frightened or being disgusted versus, like I said, I, I, I don't need to explain to you how it is to be a gay person, but you know all those things that gay people go through, you they leave it behind for those two hours because they actually focus on someone else's problems. Like is this person gonna die? I'm gonna focus on them for like five minutes. You know, <laughs> you get taken out. You get taken out of the world. You get you get drunk on on film. I don't know. That's the only way I can explain it. So therapy through horror. I like that. Therapy through horror, for sure. So what's, what's next for you in the coming months, in the coming year, uh, you know, summer readings or events or releases? What's coming up? Um, okay. Um, in October, I should have my first short story collection out. Um, slow process again, like I said. But, you know, it's with Villapede. They've done the cover art already. I'm super excited, but I can't show anybody because they said no. <laughs> um... <laughs> Summertime, hmm. Summer reads are, what am I reading here? Well, I have my friend Josh just put out a book called Black Mad Wheel, so I'm trying to read that. I'm reading John Taft's new book. It's not published yet, but um, I am like almost all the way through it. It's a humongous, apocalyptic, 150,000 word manuscript. There's that. Um, in... What is it? My friend, another friend who's an author, her name is Kathy Koja. She's coming to New York and she's putting out a new book. So we're doing a book launch for her here. And then me, luckily, John is coming to New York and we're going to do a reading here 
um, at KGB Bar Lit, which is like pretty famous in the like tiny New York horror community. And we're gonna do a big reading there with like John Forster, John Taff, and um, Eric Eric Johnson. So that should be fun. That's pretty much it. And then of course I'm trying to work my way through uh, getting inspired to write my third book, which I already know the the kind of the baseline for it, but. I don't like to plan too much when I write because then I get kind of bored. I feel caged when I start plotting and planning and I start feeling like I have to live up to expectations. I like to kind of just go with the flow and see what happens. I get that. There's some people that like to know what the monster is and some like to discover it as they move along. Uh, I'm more of a discovery person. <laughs> so uh, for the listeners that want to keep tabs on you and uh, find out about the, the KGB bar events or new releases, uh, where can they find you online? Online is Twitter, which is my favorite thing. My uh, handle is Solitary Spiral, one word. Um, and, of course, on Facebook, J. Daniel Stone, if you're there. And then I have an Amazon page. I don't have a website. I might make one. I might not. I don't know. I don't know how narcissistic. Some days I feel like crap. Some days I feel pretty narcissistic. It just depends on the day. So that's about it. And your books are available on Amazon and through uh, Villipede Publications' website? Yeah, through the website, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. I actually discovered my book sitting on Barnes & Noble's bookshelf here in Union Square. It was like crazy to see. I didn't even believe it when I saw it. I was like so happy. Did you take and a I picture? Asking, yeah, I did. I put it all over my um, I put it all over my Facebook when it was there. I put it on my Instagram as well. And, um, you know, people, I mean, the, the support was great. But who knew? There's a girl, you know, how, how it worked was there was a girl who... I asked her, I said, how the hell did my book get to this shelf? And it was, it was Blood Kiss, and I saw the Aston Light a few weeks later, but Blood Kiss was there because she was reading through horror reviews online, and she said that she likes the review, she ordered the book to the store. And then, that's it, it's pretty simple as that. So, I probably have to thank Rue Morgue for that or something, or somebody, Fangoria, who reviewed the book too. She might have got it through there, and then put the book on, on the bookshelf, which was great. That was nice. really lucky. That's why it's so important to write reviews for authors that you like. <laughs> yes, and I always tell everybody, review, 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 but reviewing is a sensitive thing for people, so I don't know. It depends. It's a uh, sensitive subject. We'll, we'll leave it to the tough guys to do it then. Yeah, yeah, seriously. More power to them. They're my people. Well, thank you very much for appearing on this special episode. Daniel, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so for our listeners, you can subscribe to the Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes, Google, or Stitcher. And if you enjoy the show, like we just mentioned, please consider leaving us a review because your feedback helps us improve the show and find more listeners. You can follow us on Facebook at the Great Lakes Horror Company or on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. And if you have a question, a comment, an idea for a future show, or maybe a future guest, an author that we haven't heard of yet, you can email us at glhc at horror-writers.ca. Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by LibraryOfTheDam.com and produced by Sephra Jerome, Monica Kubler, and myself, Andrew Robertson. And if you like the theme music, that is provided by Leslie Kervost, and her EP, Songs for Emmergan, can be found on CDBaby.com. Until next time, remember, closing your eyes is nothing but surrender. <laughs>